Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 227. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and with me is my co-host slash semi-permanent co-host, Jay Pestricelli, CEO of Zega Financial. Jay, what's going on today? Derek, uh, look, markets are up. It feels like everything's going on today. Like it's uh, It's been an interesting week, month, quarter, half a year, all kinds of good stuff going on. Yeah, I I think that's an understatement. Uh, by the way, you know we do get emails, Jay, and I want to remind people: uh, Derek dot Moore at ZegaFinancial dot com, D E R E K dot M O O R E at Z is in Zebra, E is in Eddie, G is in George, A is in Apple. Financials up to you to spell correctly dot com. If you can't spell financial correctly, do Google it. I'm sure uh, they'll help you out, Jay. Uh, all right, let's start here. Uh, okay. Bloomberg Bloomberg came out with an article the other day. Kind of, I mean, did I read that right? The Nasdaq J is best six month start ever. Can that be true? I mean, yeah, uh, that's what the article says. I was a little uh, taken aback by that, but yeah, apparently this is the best first six months for the Nasdaq ever. That's a pretty strong statement. Um, And I don't know if that's the NASDAQ 100 or the full NASDAQ composite, but uh, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, that's obviously a pretty uh, impressive metric that this is a pretty strong market. And, uh, you know, historically, that seems to be a good omen for the rest of the year, right? Well, you all right. So, if you showed somebody this and said, "Hey, this is the best," and, and by the way, the best on the graph um, is this from the late '80s, early '90s. So, it's it's the best ever. Uh, however long they've they put this out. By the way, as I'm, as I'm looking at it a little closer, it is the Nasdaq 100, not just all Nasdaq. Nasdaq 100. Okay. So that helps explain some things a little bit. Yeah. Yep. So Nasdaq 100, and but it's impressive because you think about the late '90s and the tech, you know, the dot com era. That was those are really really strong markets, and in fact, I think this one just topped it. If you showed me this, though, I'd say there's a lot of people. A lot of people would say, "Okay, market's up, best six months. It can't go up anymore, or it's it's bound to crash from here, or it's bound to just stick in place." But I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Like a lot of times, when markets are up this much early, it is a good. Oh, it's not foreboding. Can we say prediction of? probability of future potential gains? I mean, what is historically, does it say, Jay? (laughs) So historically, it tells us uh, that when you have uh, starts to the year like this, uh, you get continuation through the end of the year. Of course, it's not every year, right? But, uh, you know, way more often than not, something in the range like, uh, you know, maybe it's 80 plus percent of the time, that it continues, and maybe not at the same pace, but still, you know, double-digit type gains through the rest of the year. And so, you know, if you're someone that history uh, uses history as a guide going forward, you can't ignore this very strong start to the beginning of the year. Human nature, and, and I think traders in general, they, I mean, part of this is I think a lot of people miss this move with the core holdings in their portfolio. And I think institutions missed it as well. Like we talked last week, Jay, about who had 
oh yeah, I'm going to buy home building stocks at the lows. Like that's going to be, that's going to perform really well. There's, there's tendency to say, all right, well, I was wrong and now I have to wait. I'm going to stay in cash or I'm going to wait until the market comes back down. You know, I'm looking at, and this is the S&P in that same article, Jay. Uh, you know, since the 90s, by the way, 1995, 18.6% for six months in the S&P, 13.1% final six months. Remember, I've made that correlation between 1994, 95 to this period. You, you have on more than one occasion. That is true. But really, since 87, when you have the markets up, uh, this looks like double digits. Um, yeah, I mean, they they all... It's they're not all double digits the final six months, but there's no negative since '87, right? Yeah, and let's put it, let's keep '87 in perspective. That was obviously a unique year for those of you who don't know. That was when uh, the year that Black Monday was in October of '87. What was the percentage the market was down that uh, dreadful day, Derek? Over twenty percent, right? I'd have to look it up, but yeah, over twenty percent, yeah. yeah. I keep thinking 25 and maybe it was 22 by the time it was done. Um, you know, single. So anyway, that I think that skews uh, the data a little bit. But you're right, with the exception of, uh, you know, following that, there's one year in 88 when the market was up one and a half percent the next six months. All the rest, uh, here's one at seven, here's one at eight. But you've got 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 10, 11 percent up on all these subsequent years after the S&P is up. By double digits. Um, the S&P, unofficially, I think we should say over 15. Are we up 16% at this point? Maybe that's, we'll see when the, the numbers come out and total return and, and all that kind of stuff. So very strong first half of the year in the S&P, obviously. And that seems to, to follow through. So look, I don't, I don't know of anybody that's, and by the way, that would put us at all time highs, right? Like if we followed through at another 10% from here, right? Quick math today, market closed at 44.50. That's a nice round number, right? Uh, if we could get another, you know, 10% on that, that's about four, it's 48.95. Let's round to 4,900. Uh, that's 10% from here. That, you know, that would be something right after last year to turn around this year and hit all time highs. I'm not making that prediction, but, uh, you know, it is one of those things that uh, these numbers would could support an argument for that. They they also showed a, just how so strategists, and we'll talk about our predictions because it is July first tomorrow. We're recording this the last day of June. There's another chart that says topping targets. The S and P has eclipsed Wall Street estimates year end projections, and I, so. I guess that's a little misleading headline. I, I suppose they mean right now the market is higher than what analysts had. But they have this other chart and they said, okay, strategist year-end forecast for S&P 500 on 615.23. All right, Jay, this is a little misleading chart. Do you know what they're talking about here? Kind of describe this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this essentially is they're charting the S&P against what uh, strategists are forecasting for the end of the year value, right? So let's say, Derek, you were, uh, you know, you uh, you would say, hey, I think we're going to end up at 4,500. That would be your mark. And then that would be where, you know, we would chart. And now if you change that number throughout the year, 
your number would move. If you said, well, I was 4,500, now I'm 4,800, then, you know, your estimate would go up. And so when you look at where the analysts, uh, uh, I'll say strategists or analysts are uh, forecasting for the end of the year, I mean, it seems like it's around, what, 4050 is kind of the average of where, you know, according to this, uh, as of the middle of June, where the analysts and strategists are projecting the market will go. Uh, We just, I just said we're at 4450, right? So that's, you know, probably 400 points higher or 10% higher than what the consensus of of the strategists would have said. Now, when you look back over time, um, there's plenty of times where strategists were projecting much higher levels. So strategists aren't always, you know, sandbagging the number because they, you know, they want to say, oh, I was open for 4,200, came in at 4,300. Great. It was better than I thought. That's not it. Throughout all of 2022, strategists were projecting much higher year-end targets. Um, through most of 2021, they were also projecting much higher uh, targets throughout the year. So as the market was moving up, they were moving up their targets. So, you know, I don't know, Derek, when I when I look at this, um, at the first time I saw it, it was a little confusing as well. But essentially, as strategists are adjusting their end of year targets, they typically are a little more optimistic than where the market is going. Um, but right now, they're actually still significantly lower than where the market is. The other interesting thing is, I mean, we, we mentioned housing last week, but, you know, coming into the year, I don't know if most people had information technology as being the best performing sector. And that was probably the worst performing sector the year before. So this year it's been, you know, the, the quote, the, the who song, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. It's information tech, not energy that's driving things. Like I don't, Coming into the year, everyone's like, oh, yeah, it's going to be maybe flat to down. Uh, earnings are going to be down. And you know, energy is still good. Value is going to do well. Nope. It's the FANG stocks. And so, by the way, and this is why, great. You own the, if you own the S&P, which you know, we like to own the S&P, and then we hedge it. Always be hedged there because you don't know. But it's like, this is why you own the whole market. Because this is tough, right? It's tough. Like this, what's happening right now, nobody really, nobody really projected uh, this. I mean, very, very few, I should say, uh, would have projected something like this. I can't say nobody. I'm, I can't think of anybody. I mean, Tom Lee's one of the most bullish guys I hear from on the street. Uh, I'm not sure how he started the year. We'd have to take a look. I'm sure he's higher than everybody else. But I don't think I've heard 5,000 or 4,900 out of him. I think he was pretty high. Maybe now we No, no, I, I think it I I heard him on I think CNBC maybe December and he I think he had maybe a forty seven hundred handle or forty nine he was he was definitely one of the highest um analyst estimates on the street for sure. Morgan Stanley's been the low one. I think Morgan Stanley had the markets going back down quite a bit. I don't, they, they seem like they're revising. Testing lows, right? 3,300, 3,500, kind of in that range. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if he's changed. Uh, I think the analyst at Bank of America said, Hey, you know, uh, uh, we need to raise the estimates a little bit. And I think the chart you were talking about speaks to that. Like 
yeah, if the market's going down, they tend to lower the estimates for year-end price. If they're going up, they're like, okay, we got we to gotta raise the estimates. So I don't know. Was there anything else in this, Jay? I, this is a pretty good article. I'll put a link to it. Uh, you, you may need a subscription for Bloomberg to look at it, but I think, you know, it's the first time you're looking at it. They, they let you look at one or two. Um, I'll just say too, you know, there's, there's another thing, the bulls back in control. And we talked about it last week, markets up over 20% from the lows. And they also have a, a relative strength index. So the RSI and the RSI measures. So here, here's a little technical class for you. Your relative strength in a sideways market when it reaches above a certain amount or below a certain amount, it tells you overbought or oversold levels. When you have a trending market, markets can remain overbought or oversold, uptrend trend or downtrend, for a long time. And so how you use this index, uh, you know, technical indicator, sort of matters depending on whether you have a trending market or non-trending market. But I think, Jay, the, the point of this is, we rallied up over 20% and we did get into the overbought territory in RSI. And I, I see this chart and I see a lot of people saying, well, we're, we're so overbought right now. This, this market's overbought. Like, I don't know. Is it? Uh, I, okay. So we're going to talk about this. I'm happy to talk about the oscillator RSI, one of my favorite technical indicators. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, you know, it, the little pullback that we had for that very short period of time between, say, you know, June 15th through June 26th, right? Um, it, you know, then it got out of the overbought range. Like, we are not, we, we're not, by the way, after today's close at 44.50 on Friday, uh, I do not believe the RSI is, no, it's not. It's 69. It has to be over 70 to be in the overbought territory. So we're, this indicator says we are still not overbought. Um, so I don't, I don't, from that technical perspective, the answer is no, by definition. Uh, I mean, but, you know, feels like we've had a pretty good run so far, which, you know what, that's the emotional uh, reaction to this market, right? So without putting numbers around it, that's an emotional reaction to it. Uh, that's probably always a bad thing, right? Don't be emotional when it comes to investing, so if you're looking at those, number, those numbers, it says no. Are we bullish? Yes, this is obviously very bullish, right? Strong uptrend, series of higher lows and higher highs. We're well above the 200-day moving average. Those, those are kind of some of the other uh, technical, you know, broad, widely accepted technical indicators people use. So, you know, all that being said, Derek, I think bullish trend, obviously. And I don't know, I can't really say overbought. The number, the, the indicator doesn't say overbought. Um, I will give you a little a little additional color. Um, you know, sometimes using weekly RSIs is a little too short-lived. Sometimes, sorry, using dailies is too short-lived. You want to use a weekly. When you switch to weekly RSI, also not overbought. It's at the top end of the range, but we never got overbought on the weeklies either. So, no, we may not be overbought, Derek. I used to change that into a little bit more of a trending indicator. And I would I would switch it around a little bit, um, but we'll we'll save the technical analysis class for another time. Uh, Jay, this is interesting to me, and I want to talk about how sometimes even if you pick the exact amount of earnings, 
sometimes it, it, it comes down to what the multiple is going to be. So right now, right, well, today it's a little different, but yesterday using JP Morgan's guide to the markets and using their forward next four quarters of earnings, they're estimating the next four quarters of earnings to pull in $231.80 on the S&P per share. Okay. 43.81 was the price yesterday. You just mentioned the price today. Uh, that means uh, a 14.9 EPS or forward, um, sorry, forward PE multiple. Jay, what'd you say the market closed today? 44.50, right? So if I do- 44.50. Yeah, yep. so let's use that price. So we're trading on a forward basis. Analyst estimates, which can change. We just talked about that. That's 19, about 19.2 times next four quarters forward earnings. This has been a multiple expansion this year, Jay. Um, last year was a multiple retraction. And I have to remind people, in 2022, the, the earnings came in about $218.09. 2023, I think there's like two more companies that are still got to report there. Uh, some numbers. Uh, no, actually, no. It's, it's closed. I think it was 219.70. So earnings went up ever so slightly, 22 to 23, but the market would, had a low of what, minus 22%. In other words, you can have earnings grow and the multiple stay the same and the market will go up. You could have earnings go up and the market multiple go up. Great. Market goes up for you. You could have earnings go down and the market multiple go up enough and the market goes up. Like, Jay, this is why, you know, like imagine you said, no, I know the earnings, but trying to decide, like, are, gonna, are people going to pay 20 times forward earnings or are they going to pay 15? Like, this is hard stuff. This is why, like, you got to be right on so many things. Yeah, I, um, you know, when I think about the multiple, right, it's, it's uh, the, the, I've always said there's kind of two emotional, two ways to measure the emotions of the market. The one is implied volatility of options. The second is this multiple because it tells you the appetite that investors have for future earnings. And when you have a higher multiple, it means they're willing to pay up more today than they were the day before for the same amount of earnings, right? And when that contracts, it means they're scared and they don't believe that the earnings will hold and there's a, they pull back. And even if earnings stay flat, a reduction in the multiple means people aren't willing to pay up because the market came down. And so I, I almost feel like the multiple is the result of the market price which means uh, it's not the other way around, right? The multiple doesn't drive the price of the market. The multiple is the result of the price of the market. So what I mean by that is, you know, when when it's said and done and you take a look at here's the price of the market, we just talked 44.50, and it turns out that if earnings are projected as they are, people have been willing to pay more now for those earnings than they were before. And to me, that's a gut slash emotional kind of reaction. That's a fear and greed reaction. So people are optimistic. I mean, investors, I should say, are telling us they're optimistic by continuing to buy while the multiple is expanding. My take on the way. I mean, it, it really is emotion. Like people, 
Clearly, people were scared last year. Clearly. And this year, they're not as scared, and they're getting less scared. I mean, you, you can sort of see that. This is one of those frustrating things, though, for a lot of, I, I think, especially value investors, but a lot of investors, Jay, who say that it's a lot of reversion to the mean. So, okay, we're trading over 19 times forward earnings, and people say, well, that's too much. It's got to come back down. But we know that stocks can stay, what's the, we always quote it, uh, stocks prices can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. I think that's the famous quote. But this is what I think frustrates a lot of people. And sometimes it doesn't make sense. Like it didn't really, it didn't make sense in the late 90s, but that run lasted a couple of years. It didn't make sense leading up to, you know, 2007, 2008. But it kept going. I mean, even Michael Burry in the movie The Big Short, like he was right, but he was wrong on his timing for for a while. We were losing a lot of money. So I don't know. I, I think it's um, it's just one of those things, and it's misunderstood at times what drives markets, and that multiple is more important, I think, than people realize. Jay. Well, I mean, it, it's it's kind of one of those things that um, you know people will use to gauge is the market expensive or not, right? We, 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 maybe we're not all taught, but general theory about the markets are you want to buy lower and sell when it's higher. Well, guess what? When that multiple is low, it's telling you like, oh, I'm getting earnings at a lower, at a discount than before. So, you know, fundamental investors will buy in those scenarios. But when you have a 20 PE, right, that's not considered cheap at all, right? That's actually above the average, which is what, like 16 and a half, 16.4 historically for the multiple of the market. So as a, as a fundamental investor, you see the market running away from you and you go, wow, I kind of wish I was in it, but it's expensive and I am not going to pay more for the market. The challenge is it may not actually be more, right? You're maybe relying too much on things like the projected earnings. It's a projected number. That's not in stone. We don't know that number yet. We won't know till the end of the year. So, I, you know, this is kind of the, the complication about the way that you invest. And it's really hard to stay disciplined to that. If you were a fundamental investor, you should have loaded up last fall. I don't know what else to tell you. If you didn't, then you're not a fundamental investor. And that's hard to do. Uh, of course, nobody ever wants to chase. So the opposite is to buy with momentum. And sometimes you don't want to be the last guy or gal that bought the market at the high. But, you know, these are all just, this is why it's difficult to time when you're going to add or take money out of the market. It's why we don't really like to time the market at all, Derek. We like to be invested. Our clients have been invested all year. Uh, unless someone said, get me completely out of the market, we left everybody in the market that was in in 2020, 2021, 2022, and of course now 2023. It's because it's the easier answer. And it's right most of the time anyway. Maybe I went off on a little tangent there. Sorry, Derek. By the way, Jay, uh, 2025 earnings estimates are out, and who knows whether those are going to be 100% accurate <laughs> or not. Uh, but two, two oh, 270. You think there's a chance they're going to be 100% accurate? They could be. That's good. They could be. I think so. The rev- they could be. So the revenue increase, so that's the top line. So you have revenue, and then your earnings is the bottom line on, on the earnings, uh, the net income statement. Uh, 3.9% revenue growth. And two hundred seventy dollars a share 
So that would be 20% above, let's call, if 2023 winds up being, let's round it off to 225, that that's about a 20% increase over, you know, 24 and 25, um, 250. I, I, I'm a little suspect of these round numbers though. 250 and 24, 270 and 25, uh, you know, and I think, so I don't know. We'll see what happens with this. Listen, I mean, it's a a guess anyway, right? It's an estimate. I shouldn't say guess. It's an estimate. So if if you had 51.2, it would insinuate that you've got, oh, I've got real numbers and here's what my data kicks out. I think it helps protect like, hey, it's an estimate. So we round, right? But I I wouldn't be suspect of that too much. Although I would be suspect of anything that's projecting out to 20, the end of 2025 at this point, right? Yeah. You need a lot of factors that go into that math. But guess what? There's people and companies that spend a lot more time and money on things like that than we do. And uh, you know what? Most of them don't beat the S&P, Derek. They don't. They do not. Well, let's – it is mid-year, Jay. And you and I did a show in December. And we did one the December of 21 as well. Where it's sort of a, I'll call it a good-natured, we make our predictions for the following year. So it's mid-year, Jay. I think it's time we check in and see how right or how wrong we are. Uh, I'll remind the audience. Yeah, I know. We have to. Well, I'm not going to link to the episode. (laughs) I'm not going to do that. But I remind everyone. Let's do it. No, we have to face the music. And I'll remind everybody, we don't, like... A lot of things we do are systematic. It's it's long-term approaches that are systematic in nature. We either buy and hedge, have or buy but with, with buffers. We have different strategies. You know, obviously, they do different things. We sell volatility. We do it as a systematic thing. So, all right, but here's the deal. So we just have these conversations, like everybody does. So, you said the S and P is at forty four fifty. Uh, your year-end target, Jay, what do you think it was for the S&P? Uh, I don't even know if it was 4,000. Um, no, well, 4,350, Jay. Oh, wow. Good job, yeah. Jay. That's good. How, I'll well, take it. Then it applies a 100-point <laughs> decline from here. So you've, you're saying, Ooh. now you said the high for the year would be 4,500 and the low would be 3,900. So... I'm, I'm uh, okay. Well, the low is 3,800. We'll see the high. Maybe we're close. All right. That's fun. How about you? Well, um, I was going to give somebody else's cause they're better than mine, but I said, uh, oh. basically 4,000 on the end of the year, 4,100 high and 3,200, the, uh, the S and P low. You, you, you definitely were a little on the bearish side when we started the year. I do recall that. That was before AI, Jay. Well, the whole world has changed, apparently. <laughs> of course it has. Yeah. Uh, yes. So, Do we get to adjust? No, I know we don't. Keep going. Keep yeah, going. I'm not going to go through all these, but Fed funds. Do you remember what you thought the, the end of year of Fed funds would be? Uh, five and a half. You said four to four and a quarter. <laughs> I don't even know my own <laughs> guess. That's terrible. Uh, <laughs> you said the high range, though, would be five to five and a quarter. Isn't that where we are right now? That that is where we are right now, and it, that is the high of the of the of the cycle so far. Uh, Although, see what they so far. Well, Powell the other Powell has told us 
it is really, really important that we raise two more times. It's so important. We're not going to do anything in June. We're just going to sit around and watch. <laughs> right. Even though June was nothing. I, you know, so now you got me thinking, what, what do the probabilities look like uh, uh, for this? And uh, looking at Fed funds futures, there's an 84% chance we go up by another 25 basis points on July 26th. Mm. So fairly certain that the, you know, the, the market is expecting another increase to go to five and a quarter to 550 as the upside range. Yeah, that's fair enough. Jay, I was end of year four and a quarter, four and a half. That's a, a quarter point higher than you. Uh, I've already lost the the high range though. I was four and three quarters to five. So that's that's done for me. Uh, okay. What do you think you're in? Infl- I feel like I'm two for two against you, but who knows? Yeah, what do I know? Uh, just so anyway, <laughs> inflation change. What do you think your your 2023 change was going to be? So your year over year on the it would come out in January, but for the December number. What do you think? Yeah, uh, I'm. I'm. I. I. Uh, maybe I give the Fed too much credit. Three and a half is. Pro- I'm guessing on my own. You number. said five. No, hey, that's not. I think that's not so bad right now. That's not so far off. No, what are we four something now year over year? Four, four point three. Yeah, four, yeah, something like that. I was I was three point oh five, which I think is a good chance of happening. And it, it's just <laughs> no, it's it's just it's just I, now it. we didn't say core. I think core is still going to be high, but there are some higher numbers. So I think last June June of twenty two, July of twenty two. Those were some of the, the months that had really high increases. And so when you do a year over year, now you start to, it's, it's the, the base effect, they call it. So I think that'll be a little, little different. All right, let me do uh, one or two more of these. GDP change, Jay. Uh, I was at 1.8% for the full year. Uh, what do you think you were? Well, I, I do remember this because you mocked I me did. a little bit for my extremely bullish uh, expectation. I think I was in like the five. You were five percent. Right? So, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So mock away, my friend. I'm just yeah. kidding. It's fine. Yeah. By the way, you had uh, here. I'll just I'll just say these year at ten year Treasury end of year. You had three and a half. I had two point nine five. So it's you're right there, Jay. With the with the ten year, and okay, yeah, we had. By the way, we did about, for about volatility, right? We, vol is one of the ones that we like. Oh yeah, pick, right? yeah, yeah. So you said thirty five oh one, I said thirty three oh five, and this was a. Do we say the VIX closing high for the year? I think so. Uh, uh, the high of the whole year, the highest point it hits mm-hmm. throughout the year. Yeah. What was it so far this year? It yeah. wasn't that. How, how are we doing on that? I think probably pretty bad, right? <laughs> well, we were some of the lower ones on here. So uh, among the... In- I think there was a oh a closing high VIX of 26 right now. 26 and a half. Looks like the high close of the VIX in that ever so scary March cycle, that March month that we had. So, yeah. A little sarcastic. All right. I won't go through the yeah, other ones. We'll, I'm sure we'll go through them at some point. Uh, I will say we had Bitcoin end of year number and somebody actually filled in the answer. Who cares? Uh, that was Brett. 
Brett on our investment committee. So oh, that wasn't you? No, it wasn't me. <laughs> I had a really low number. <laughs> of the people who put numbers in, I had a low number. I was the lowest by far. <laughs> but um, that might be my answer next year because it doesn't matter, Jay, anymore. AI is the only thing that matters. Uh, so, all right. Yeah, I think I've said this before on the podcast. I thought, you know, this was going to be the crypto generation. It turns out it may just be the AI generation. We'll see. But uh, when I think about what you're going to have to teach your son and I got to teach mine, it may be the uh, AI is what they teach us. I I think so. I think so. All right. One, one quick thing. Uh, student loans. All right. So Supreme Court came down today and they... They basically said you can't you can't use the justification to wipe out either ten thousand or twenty thousand dollars per person based upon income limits. Uh, I'll you know I, you can read the summary somewhere else. Uh, but I I was thinking so I have some thoughts on that. But also the student loan pause is ending. What is that? August or by October? I think October. I think it's October. Yeah. And I was trying to think through, I, I heard an interesting commentary that somebody said this probably reduces GDP by nine basis points or 10 basis points. And other people say, no, I think it could be a little bit more. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of forget, like people have had student loans. They haven't had to pay anything for three years. And you'd say, okay, well, that's probably inflationary because that's money that they, they have to spend on other things. And some people have pretty high student loan payments. I don't know, Jay, is that, do you think that hurts the economy at all? I don't know. Don't really know how to quantify that. Well, uh, look, I, th I think there's a, the, the general assessment is that it will hurt the consumer discretionary spending, right? I mean, that's kind of the, the first thing that you assume when people have to start paying their loans uh, versus uh, having the cash in their wallet, it'll hurt discretionary spending. So I think that's the first thing. So maybe that helps slow down the consumer a little bit. I'm with you. Like this was definitely considered an inflationary uh, action where, you know, you just people have more cash to spend because they're not spending it on a loan, right? I'd, I would love it if they were turning around and investing that money into the stock market, but the general consensus, consensus is that is not what is happening. So wouldn't it be great if people just turn around and like, Hey, buy yourself a share of SPY, you know, once a month. Just pay 300 bucks, 350, 400 bucks right now, 445 actually is the end of today. Buy yourself a share of SPY instead of, you know, uh, spending it on something else. That would be nice. Now I feel like I'm preaching here. My apologies. But yes, yeah, so I do think discretionary spending is the assumption that will be the first to feel uh, uh, the hit of, uh, of, you know, the loan repayments resuming. And discretionary, of course, is consumer discretionary is speedboats versus toothbrushes, right? I mean, that's that's kind of the thing, and that's that's an extreme example. But it's like the <laughs> the stuff you need versus the stuff you want, or the stuff you don't. I need a speedboat. <laughs> Come on, I need a speedboat. What was the joke? Uh, somebody who who used to own a boat said, uh, "How do you wind up with a uh, million dollars as a boat owner? You start with two million. Oh. You start yeah. at two million. I thought you were going to go the best two days of owning a boat or the day you buy it in the base. Oh, that's another good one it. too. Yeah. No, there's that one too. You got a lot of boats in, in, in the desert where you are, Derek? Uh, you know, we have, no, of course not. Not like Florida, but we have some pretty big reservoirs that are 
really full from all the snow snow melts up north. So uh, yeah, people people go out on on those, but no, not really. We don't. Uh, not unless California don't need a speedboat. Okay. Not unless we uh, California kind of you know the big earthquake comes and we wind up with beachfront property, but not nothing yet. Yeah, I mean that'd be a big one. I don't. I don't know. I can't really quantify it. By the way, I was just doing some quick math. And let's say somebody had a $500 a month student loan payment. Over three years, If to your point, Jay, if they would have taken the 500 that they didn't have to pay and put it into the market, that's $18,000. Just, you know, if you didn't get zero, if you got 0% on your investments. Um, yeah, I mean, that's... Wow. And right now you probably would not have got zero. Well, you just told me this is the best six months to start to the year. And you would have been buying cheaper in 2022, dollar cost averaging, right? Yeah. Yeah. It probably would have been a good idea. The But you bought a speedboat. Do not buy a speedboat. No, do not. (laughs) You know, it's it's funny. Um Dave Ramsey is somebody who I don't, you know, I don't necessarily agree with a lot of stuff he talks about. Um, but one I remember him, somebody passed me this thing. And I thought it was really good. He said, you should buy a much cheaper car than even your level of income. And you have to be comfortable driving up to a light and looking over to your right and realizing your car is much worse than the person next to you, even though your income is much better. And and he makes the point, you know, it's a depreciating asset, but people spend way too much on cars. Um, anyway, I, d- I don't often agree with Dave Ramsey, but when I do, I'll I'll just say it. So... There you go. But good news is I, I can disagree with that point, right? You can. Um, I can. On the student loan thing. Anybody who knows me would agree that I would disagree with that point, but that's okay. All right. Continue, please. The student loan thing is interesting, by the way. And it's, uh, you know, we're not going to get into it too much. I will just say, if if you came up to me and said, okay, put your economist hat on. And if you wanted to design a structure that would allow a business, or in this case, let's say universities or schools, whether it's nonprofit or for-profit, to charge as much as they want and raise their fees or, or tuition really uh, much greater than many, many other products in the economy. Like, how would you do it? And I would say, okay, you get unlimited government money. And then you also... You know, it doesn't matter whether it's a Sanskrit major, you know, that's an ancient language. You know, if you want to get your PhD in Sanskrit, I don't know if there's a big market for PhDs in Sanskrit. I don't know. I don't know enough about that market, Jay. But like, this is exactly the way you would do it if you wanted to make sure something costs a lot and keeps costing a lot. So I don't know. I don't think it would have, if you wiped everything out, what does it really change? I mean, nothing would really change. It's still going to be expensive. And with a lot of these income repayment plans now, like why not just make tuition a billion? If they could do it with a straight face, they would. So I don't know, Jay, if you have any thoughts on that. But Well, as a, as a parent of a boy that's about to go to college, um, I, t- I gave him the advice. You should take a loan for some of this because you never know if it's going to be forgiven. Even though I'm against that, uh, personally, I think I don't think it's the greatest thing for the economy. I would say you'd be an idiot to not take the money if they were giving it to you. So, uh, you know, I'm just in practice. I'm sure I'm not the only one that's given that, uh, you know, advice to their children, right? Take at least something of a loan. 
Uh, and then we'll see, um, you know, Hey, if I got to pay it off for you later, I will, no problem. But I, you know, Derek, it's, it's, I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, you value what you pay for, you value what you've, and payment doesn't always mean, um, cash, but you, usually it does. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things that having, uh, you know, a, a, I'm, a, I'm trying to skin think in the game, you probably uncovered something. that other. Yeah. Skin in the game, but even just, but at the right level, right? Like it's got to like, you know, ridiculous, uh, tuitions, uh, can also be, uh, can, can also be damaging as well. So I look, there's a lot that has gone around, uh, um, from the political standpoint around college this week, right? College loans and other, other pieces. So I just, I feel like, you know, this is something that'd be great if we could get right because the end result is, uh, um, is a better, uh, better educated and better skilled economy. And I'm, you know, uh, you know, I'm going to stop myself before I say something that'll get you, know, you in trouble because it's your, your podcast and not mine. So let's leave it. Let's leave it. Yeah. There. I will say that, uh, no, that's, we'll leave that for other people. It's, uh, there's a lot of moral hazard that comes up with, with discussions like this. And, you know, you, you read some of the stories and you say, well, what about the person who works an extra job, paid off their loans like last year, like, all right, do they get money back? Or somebody 10 years ago who said, you know, I can't go to college and instead I'm going to go work. Or I could have gone to Harvard, but instead I went to made up university state, you know, whatever it is. So it, economics is an interesting, and it's interesting to me, economics is a dull science for a lot of people, but there's so much in here, whether, you know, from incentives, uh, moral hazard, just any number of things that are kind of fascinating. And uh, yeah, in another life, I, I guess I would come back and start a, a university and we would only teach Sanskrit, Jay, the ancient language. That's all we would do. We would just teach that. Couldn't do it. Million dollars a year, you know, so <laughs> anyway. All right, Jay, any, uh, any recommendations this week? So I kind of went a little old school, but like we're in this, this uh, you know, period where, uh, um, there's not a lot of new stuff that's coming out, but there's some of them. My favorite, you know, Sunny in Philadelphia is definitely on my Thursday watch list. I'm also watching Star Trek, but I went back and started watching uh, some older stuff that I feel like I got left behind on. I feel like there's no no big sh- there's no big shows right now that are keeping my attention. So uh, I am watching uh, Boardwalk Empire. I am watching Peaky Blinders, and I am watching with my wife Suits. So there you go. I don't know if I would. They're all fine, right? They're all good. They're all entertaining. I've had some people tell me Boardwalk Empire is like one of their top three. They put it up there with Game of Thrones and Sopranos. So I'm like, all right, I'll give it a shot. I've had trouble getting past the third episode, but maybe I'll get back to it. Meghan Markle is in that show. I did watch that show. My wife and I used to watch Suits uh, when it was. It, I think it's a good, yeah, it's it's a good yeah. one, right? It's like who's really going to get bothered by that? Meghan Markle apparently and Harry, they Spotify uh, dumped them, but apparently they paid them thirteen million dollars and they produced like twelve podcasts. So I figure this is two twenty seven. Spotify, you know, we're at least worth uh, twenty times that what they get if that's the going rate. So good money if you can get it. 
Yeah. No, Suits, Suits was pretty yeah. good. No, you're not getting you're not getting a million an episode here. Well, uh, apparently something's wrong. I have the wrong agent. I got to talk to somebody about that. Oh yeah. Um, maybe maybe you need a better. Company. Yeah, potentially. So I'm I went back in time too. I went back to 2013. A movie called Rush. It's on Netflix right now. So if you have Netflix, you can watch it. It's uh it's got um, Chris Hemsworth plays. It's a Formula One. Uh, based upon Nikki, yeah, racing Nikki Louder and James Hunt. And I do watch Formula One. It's I thought it was a great movie. It didn't do well commercially at all. It I think it kind of flopped. But uh, I know it, it was good. So it's on there. I recommend that one. Ford versus Ferrari, too, if you like. That was a good movie, too. That was... Um, uh, I would. That's definitely on a recommendation list from, from me, for sure. That's the Le Mans race. So they drive for 24 hours, which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're tired yeah. and driving at night. That sounds like an awesome idea, but they do it. Yeah. <laughs> Look, we're, we're the, the, the Pestricellis are a Mustang family. We've had Mustangs in our uh, uh, family forever. Original owners of some of the seventies, right. Uh, um, first uh, generation Mustangs and even some current ones. And it's like one of those things that, uh, you know, when you, you, you get connected to Shelby and obviously the Mustang is, is a big piece of, uh, of Ford's racing history. And so that movie was of uh, particular enjoyment to uh, all generations of uh, people in my family. It's a good one. Oh yeah. Ford, the Shelby, that's uh we went to the, uh, what's the thing, the auction in, in Arizona in Scottsdale. Jackson, Barrett Jackson. Barrett Jackson. Yeah. So we went, went to that one year and where we were sitting uh, right near us was uh, Steve McQueen's great grandson or grandson. I'm not sure which one it was. And they were auctioning off uh, a Shelby Cobra that was, uh, I think, one of only a few made of this type and got quite a bit of money. So that was, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of fun. I went to, uh, here in uh, West Palm. There's uh, in Florida. There's also a, uh, a Barrett Jackson show. Not as big as the Phoenix one or is it Scottsdale? Not as big as the one with yeah. you. Yeah. And uh yeah, a lot of fun to go do that. So much fun that like next year I'm like I don't even know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to buy a car at one of these oh, things boy. just to go through the auction. Process. Oh boy, yeah. Listen, you could you could buy anything. It doesn't have to be a hundred thousand dollar car. You could buy. We saw things going across the lot at you know twenty thousand, fifteen thousand. I saw a nice Jeep. Derek. Mm. I bet you can upgrade your Jeep uh, at Barrett Jackson next year if you want to. Maybe I'll I'll put mine up for auction. You know, it's 15 years old. It's a, or you could, or you could put yours up and then, you know, upgrade. To yeah. One, don't you? you could roll that trade up and I could, out. I could roll, it, roll it up roll. and out. Yeah. No, I think that's a good idea. You also have to go to F1 at some point. I mean, it's in your backyard now. Oh yeah. I mean, two grand for a ticket to go in person. That's, you know, that's, it's not the cheapest thing to go see. But how much is your enjoyment really? I mean, it's, it's the enjoyment per dollar there that, uh, that you get, oh. I think. I'm going to let you talk to uh, my wife about that one. That sounds great. Derek's going to talk to you about enjoyment per dollar. Well, all right. We'll leave it there, and next week we'll explore that. Is that a, is that a new market ratio? <laughs> let's, let's work on enjoyment per no, dollar. No, we're talking economics. It's utility theory. It's it's uh, how many utils do you – it's like you know the first uh, slice of pizza has really high value, and by slice 73, it's like diminishing returns. So it's an economic concept. Yes, I do, I do remember that one. I do. I, I you need, Professor Derek still needs a sound effect on the on the podcast. Some at some point, but no, it, it's and then 
you're uh, instead of two thousand, it's it's your next best alternative, and you have to compare those two of of what the most value is. So, you know, we'll I'll, I'll talk to your wife, Jay. No problem. We'll get it all squared away. All right, we'll explore. That's great. I'd love to go to F one. That'd be great. I think uh, Austin. Austin in October. There's going to be a yeah, yeah. I think we'll be. We will be down there at the SIBO uh, has a risk conference every year down there. So um, I, I'm guessing there will be some folks that get to go to that race while we're down. Yeah. Well, then, then there's the November one in, in Vegas, or you could always go to just Abu Dhabi, a uh, short skip and a jump for you on the East coast to, uh, yeah. you know, not too bad there. That's a night race too. That's a cool one. For the weekend. Yeah. Not too bad. All right, Jay, let's leave it there. We'll come back next week and break down F1's upcoming Austrian Grand Prix this week in detail, um, and we'll see what the market does. Jay, thanks again for coming on. We'll talk to you soon.